Let's turn then to uh, Matthew chapter 4 for the third of these studies together. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Let's just pray as we come. Lord, we are greatly privileged to be able to open this book, uh, the Word of God, and to see the Lord Jesus Christ uh, do what we must do to stand against the tempter. We pray, Lord, as we see the reality of it, that uh, we might be spoken to in our hearts by these things. And Lord, uh, what a wonderful thing to see our Saviour and to see his great work for us done here in uh, this wilderness place, uh, as well as throughout his life and on the cross and through the resurrection and his ascension and his intercession now for us. We thank you for him and pray that he may be the center of our attention, though we want to grow and learn ourselves uh, from what we learn and see together. Help us then, Lord, we pray, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How do we understand that? How do we fathom Uh, what happens here in the verses that Andrew read for us. The Lord Jesus has just been baptized. And those words come from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And uh, you may have only come across this passage this morning because it's been read here. For many of us, we will have read it perhaps many times and we'll have asked ourselves the question, how did this happen? How, how, could, how could Satan come in this way? Um, what actually happened? It says the devil took Jesus up into the holy city into Jerusalem and put him on a pinnacle of the temple? How did, how did that happen? How did, how did he then show him all the nations of the world? And uh, there are deep mysteries uh, for us. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He says, this is a deep and mysterious subject. There is much in the history of it which we cannot explain. But there lie on the face of history plain, practical lessons. So I'm not trying this morning to answer the difficult questions about how it all was and uh, the mystery of some, of some of it which was hard for us to understand. But to know that this is the word of God and is practical and profitable for us. And particularly in this whole matter of temptation and the tempter that we're looking at. Uh, And there are four things here for us, as uh, Ryle says, four plain practical lessons. And then we'll, after that, see four applications 
positively for us. So I want to do this by using some simple words. And the first word is certainty. Certainty. Calvin says this, who is there that will be exempt from Satan's bite when even Christ himself was not spared? Do, do we think, do you think as a Christian that you are somehow going to be spared? Calvin says, who thinks they're going to be exempt from temptation? Who thinks they're going to be exempt from Satan himself coming and dealing with you as an individual like he did with Jesus and opposing you and seeking to gain the advantage of you. If Satan tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, then surely he will tempt you. And that's a serious thought. Uh, that's something we need to take notice of and uh, realize that what we've been doing and talking about these last few weeks is something which is deeply serious in our Christian lives. When we read this account, and there's another account in Luke 4, a very small reference in Mark 1, but in Luke 4, um, it's slightly different. We don't know whether Satan came right at the end of the 40 days, which are referred to here in verse 2, when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterwards, he was hungry. Uh, was it right at the end that Satan came, or was it during those 40 days? I don't think it really matters. What it, what it tells us here is that he came. He was a reality. And what we notice is this, that this opposition comes right at the very beginning of the Lord's ministry. It's quite significant, isn't it? We got Matthew 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 onwards read to us because we need to see the context that it was when Jesus was was lifted up, as it were, by his Father and shown as being the wonderful, perfect, glorious Son of God with, with whom he was so well pleased. It was then that Satan came. It was at the outset of his ministry that Satan came. And I think that has something to say to us, doesn't it? Do we want to venture for God? Do we want to serve him? Do you, have you made up your mind that you're going to go and take these tracts and you're going to put them on your desk and you're going to put them there tomorrow morning, and you're going to hope that over the next few days, over Christmas time, they'll all go, and you're going to venture for God in that way. Or you're going to take one of those books, and you are going to speak to your neighbor, or you are going to talk to somebody in your family and say, would you like this book? It's about Jesus, the light of the world. I want you to know about him. And we're fired up to do it, and we want to do it, and we're right at the very beginning of something which we, want, we long to do and honor God. That is when Satan comes. That is when he comes. If you, don't, if you don't venture for God, if you don't want to grow in holiness, if you want to hide away somewhere, Satan's not really bothered about you. He's got you, hasn't he? He's got the advantage. But he came to Jesus just at this time. I think it really tells us something. This is when fierce opposition comes. When we want to serve God and particularly stand for him. And uh, we have to realize, don't we, as well, that the Lord Jesus here, 40 days and 40 nights without food. We, 
we went for a walk one day this week and I hadn't eaten very much and I felt wobbly after a mile. The Lord Jesus had fasted and been in the presence of his Father for 40 days and 40 nights. We would say humanly, wouldn't we, reverently, he was more than wobbly, surely. You see, Satan has no love for the Saviour. No sympathy for him. He doesn't come and say to him, make these stones into bread because I really care for you. I don't like to see you like this so weak. And I want to help you. No, not a bit of it. He cares not for him. He has no kindness. He has no scruples. He has no compassion. Never think that what the devil does that what he does in temptation is in any way for your good. You see, sometimes what happens when we're tempted, we think that the end of temptation, the sin that it leads to, does us good. It makes us feel good. Sin can make you feel good. But he has no compassion for you. There is no kindness in it. He doesn't tell you about the horrors that await you in your conscience. And the consequences of sin. Sometimes in war and in conflict, we find great stories, don't we, of, of kindness. The most unlikely of people. You may have seen the film Schindler's List. And what a story. In the midst of the war. But we're reminded, aren't we, in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, that your adversary is a roaring lion. He's like a roaring lion. And he's going round seeking whom he may devour. Remember, many years ago, a preacher saying, he's not coming just to bite you. He's not just going to leave a few fang marks on you. He wants to devour you. The certainty of it. None of us are exempt. That is why Paul writes to the Ephesian church and Christians in Ephesus. He says you're in a warfare. You need the whole armor of God. Not a bit of it. Not one part of it. But all of it. And he tells them that they are facing a warfare against principalities and powers and the rulers of wickedness in high places. The devil is not on his own. He is part of a multitude of fallen angels. We cannot see. And frankly, we can't really understand. But the word of God tells us about these things. And there is that set against us. And he is our arch enemy. And the certainty is this, that he will tempt you as a Christian. Maybe you're a young Christian. It's pretty fearful, isn't it? But wait, there's lots coming to help us. But it's a certainty. It's a certainty. Never think that sin is going to actually be fun or be joyful or give you a good thing or a good time because it will always disappoint. Don't listen to his temptations. When he came and said in verse 3, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. 
He doesn't do it because he has any concern for Jesus. He only wants to take advantage of him. And that's what he does with you and me. Our second word is suitability. Certainty. Suitability. It is interesting, isn't it, that we have this, we have this occasion here. So we have the introduction in Matthew, the, 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 the part of the, what we call the Christmas story, uh, and the wise men, and so on, and, uh, and then the baptism of the Lord Jesus, and then we have the temptation. But then what, would, what do we find at the end of the temptation in verse 11? Satan left him. He left him. So it seems that there is a period, a specific period here. It is not that, the, that, that Satan disappeared and never came again. But he came at this particular time. There was an intensity here at this particular time. And I think we, we realize, don't we, as we go on as Christians, older Christians will tell you younger Christians that there are times... When, when you feel that, well, I don't feel Satan at all. I, I feel so close to the Lord and I, I, I'm walk, walking with him and uh, I don't feel him coming to me. But then there are times when it's awful and it's difficult and it's troublesome and you can't, as it were, shake him off because he comes in a particular period of time. We're going to learn on Wednesday about this man, Thomas Brooks, who wrote this wonderful, wonderful book. And what he says is that when he, when he set out to write the book, he knew Satan opposing him. And you see, there are times when Satan comes. He, it's almost as if like an army uh, or, or like a, a, a football team playing another football team. You can't be attacking all the time. There are times when there's a lull in war, in the fighting. But the thing to notice is the suitability of his temptations. That when he comes, he has studied you. He knows you. He knows what you're about. And he comes to tempt you. And we've said it before, haven't we? He puts on your plate what you like to eat. He puts in your mind, he puts in your way, he puts in, into your past things that are going to attract you. We had our walk yesterday. What a beautiful sunny day it was. And there were times when we stopped and we looked at a tree and we looked at the river and uh, we were talking about different birds and things and some had said they'd seen a, a woodpecker and so on. We... We stop and we're attracted by something. And Satan knows what to put on our walk through life to attract us so that we're distracted. And he puts suitable things where we stop and we'll look. And he knows. He knows. Because he studies us. He knows what weakens us. In the superheroes, they found out, didn't they, what weakened Superman? What weakened Superman? Kryptonite. 
Thank you. I knew you'd know it, Stephen. Kryptonite. What is kryptonite? Oh, it's a fictional thing, isn't it? It's just... But if he came into contact with kryptonite, this superhero became nothing. Hmm. Satan knows what's kryptonite for you. And he knows what's kryptonite for me. And he knows what it is which will weaken us and, and, and gain the advantage over us. In the insurance industry, I, I, I trained for some time as a surveyor. And uh, you would go around a building uh, because they wanted to know about security. And uh, when you went round a building, you would always look for the weak spots. You would think like the thief. You would think, where, where would I get in here? And sometimes it's the most unlikely thing. The unlikely window tucked away. The door that wasn't really properly locked. And that's Satan, you see. You all have an Achilles heel. We all have an Achilles heel. In Greek mythology, Paris tried to, uh, to, to stop Achilles. Achilles could run. But he shot him in the heel. In the heel. That's where his weakness was. That's the saying, an Achilles heel. You've got an Achilles heel. What is your besetting sin? What is it that comes again and again and again? And you've got older in the Christian life and you're in your 40s or in your 50s and 60s, but it still troubles you. Satan knows it. So suitable temptations is what he uses. So let's look at what he does here with the Lord Jesus. What does he do? Verse 2. Sorry, verse 3. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Isn't that a suitable temptation? The Lord Jesus was as much man as he is God, but as man, he's weak. He's not eaten for 40 days. What a suitable temptation. His first temptation. He comes to him and says, You could do this. And these stones could become bread. And you don't have to feel so tired and weak. How suitable. The suitability. The certainty of temptation. Number three, variety. Variety. His variety. So verse three, we've seen verse three. How he comes in that way. But how does he come in verses five and six? The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Well, that's very different, isn't it? To verse three. What about verses eight and nine? The devil uh, took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Isn't it interesting? That first temptation in verse 3, that's a very physical thing, isn't it? That the physical need that Jesus as a man had for bread, something to eat in the circumstances 
And Satan knew that that was a suitable temptation. But he doesn't, Jesus rebukes him, and we'll see this later on, uh, but uh, when he does, he doesn't come back again and try again, does he? He doesn't come back and say, these stones, you could make them into bread. No, no, no. What he's doing now is he's trying something different, isn't he? In verses 5 and 6, he is trying something different. He's taking the Lord Jesus in some way. This is the mystery of it. How does he take him onto the pinnacle of the temple? We don't know, but what we know is this. That is a very different temptation, isn't it? To that first one. That is, that is what we might call a mental temptation. He's getting into his mind, isn't he? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written in the Bible that you know God will send his angels and they'll catch you. He's playing with his mind. You see the variety of temptation? Physical, mental. We might call this... The last one, then spiritual. Perhaps we could do that. Verses 8 and 9. And the devil took him onto an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and says, uh, said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Uh, and the key word there is worship. Spiritual worship. He is getting to Jesus at the level of worship. At the level of the spiritual life. It's very telling, isn't it? It is very telling the variety that the devil uses when he comes to the Lord Jesus and he tries this way and this way and this way. And so we must be careful, mustn't we? Because we realize this, that he may come to us in this particular way and we may feel quite good, really, because we've, we've not gone off on his way. We've not fallen for it. And he'll come in a different way and we won't see him coming. The variety that he uses. He's single-minded, isn't he? Did you notice something that we saw last week? Did you notice in verse, in, in verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the writer here, Matthew, is using the Greek word diabolos, the devil. But do you notice what Jesus says in verse 10? Do you notice that as he went through, the devil took him and the devil did this and the devil did that. But when Jesus addresses him in verse 10, he says, away with you, Satan. Do you see that? Do you see what we mentioned last week about how Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and he used the word Satan in the course of what he's writing. And he does it to make the reader, the hearer, sit up and take notice. Because the word Satan is that Aramaic word which goes back to the Old Testament, which goes back to Zechariah 3, which we saw last week. And what did we see? We saw Satan standing and opposing Joshua the high priest, opposing everything to do with the worship of God and the whole spectrum of our salvation that is pictured in that chapter. Satan, the opposer. And Jesus says to him, away with you, Satan. I know what you're about. 
You are the arch enemy. You've always been around. You were there in the day of Zechariah. You were there way back in Eden. You're here now. And he rebukes him because he's the opposer. You see, Satan uses all these different varieties of temptation suitable for, for our situation as he was suiting the, world, the, the, the temptation to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may know the book, the Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis wrote it a long time ago. It's, got, it's, it's, it's a little bit outdated now, but when you look at it again uh, and you see in there, uh, Lewis gets this in his story because uh, in his story about uh, what happens there, won't go into the detail, but he, he, he uses this these different things. There's a man who's a Christian and uh, he's being attacked by the devil and the junior devils. And uh, the junior devils come to the devil and they say, we can't get at him. Uh, and he says, use different things. Use his friends. Use sex. Use humor. You see, the devil will use all sorts of things. Variety. Number four, subtlety. Subtlety. How subtle are these temptations on them? They're very direct. We can see that. But how subtle they are. They're subtle in three ways. Let me show you. First of all, doubt. Doubt. Verse 3. The first temptation. If. If you are the Son of God. Well, he knows he's the Son of God. But he's trying to make Jesus doubt of. Verse 6. And he said to him, if. You are the son of God. Verse 9. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's what he's done from the beginning, isn't it? You know, in Eden, what did, what did he do? What did the devil do Is in the form of the serpent? When he came to Eve, doubt. Has God said has God really said? So he, he uses that with us, doesn't he? He uses that with us, really. You know, when temptation comes, we, we think, oh, crumbs, I don't know. Perhaps this is not, perhaps this is not altogether wrong. Perhaps, perhaps it'd be okay if I did this. If. What doubt does, doubt undermines our faith, doesn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Absolutely clear about that. The devil comes in and says, yeah, but if there was an element of evolution in the world, and if the miracles of Jesus were actually just natural phenomenon, and if this is not particularly sinful. 
You see how he works? Undermining us. Truth is what we put our feet on, isn't it? Truth. We have the word of God. It's true. And it underpins everything we teach and everything we believe, everything we do. And Satan knows if he can just undermine it a bit. So you can't walk across the stepping stones at Dovedale at the moment because they've been washed away. The foundations of them have gone. You can't get across and the National Trust has closed it. So don't go up there, you'll be disappointed. And now people can't get across because the foundations of the stones have been washed away by the flood. And what Satan's trying to do is through doubt, through doubts, is to undermine your faith so that you can't get across. You're not so sure. Your faith begins to fail. So you don't say anything to that friend at work or whatever because you're not sure really of the ground anymore that you're on. Number two, under subtlety, lies. Lies. Well, Satan's very subtle, but he's also a liar, isn't he? John 8, verse 44, tells us he's the father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning. He was a liar, wasn't he? He lied to Eve. You won't die. Come on. That's what he says to us, isn't it? Come on, watch it. It, doesn't, it won't matter. Go there, come on. That, that's not a problem. Verse 8. The devil took Jesus up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What? He has not got the kingdoms of the world. Though it seems he is the ruler, but he is not really, is he? Just like Korah had the world in her hands, it is God who holds the world in his hands. He steers the planets and he holds the sun in place and the moon and he causes the seasons all these things, and Satan comes along and he lies. But it's sort of like a convincing lie, isn't it? If you do this, because I, you can have all, you can have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. But he already has them. And the devil comes along and he lies to you. He tells you lies. He doesn't tell you the outcome of the temptation. He doesn't tell you what will happen when you are tempted and you sin. He doesn't tell you what it's then going to be like. He tells you just a bit. He tells you enough to debilitate you and to trip you up and take advantage of you. But he doesn't tell you the truth of what will happen when you sin. So doubt and lies. 
Now here's a master stroke. Do you see what else he uses? Do you see what else he uses in verse 6? He uses scripture. He uses the Bible. Just think that the, the, the tempter is coming to tempt the Lord Jesus. What audacity is that? But he's coming with the scripture to tempt the very word of God. The living word of God, the Lord Jesus. It is incredible, really. Verse 6. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan is quoting scripture. And he doesn't have to look it up. He doesn't have to say, wait a minute, whilst I just get a concordance out and check out what it says. Satan knows scripture by heart, doesn't he? Can you see that? Straight away he says, if you're, the, if you're the son of God, it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan knows Psalm 91, off by heart. <laughs> off by heart. You can prove anything with the Bible, can't you? There's no God, you know. The Bible says that. There's no God. There is no God. Three times it says that in the Bible. Ah, what it says is, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the devil can take scripture and use it. You know, in Romans, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has to deal with something. He has to deal with something because there are those who have been using Scripture, as it were, in a wrong way. And what he says is this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, why is the Apostle Paul having to write to Christians in Rome and write to them in that way? That is a very, very strong statement, isn't it? He says in his writing, God forbid, that is not right. What's happened here? Well, what has happened here is that Christians have got the idea that the doctrine of God's grace and mercy is such that it doesn't really matter if you sin because God is so gracious, so merciful, so kind, so continually forgiving that it doesn't really matter if you sin because you can come to God and he'll forgive you anyway. See, somehow in the mind of Christians, they've got the whole thing completely wrong. It's what we call antinomianism. It's Anti is against nomianism is law, against the law. Against the law. But Paul is saying, no, the law of God is very important. Don't abandon God's Ten Commandments, God's law, because they're a signpost to show us how to live for Christ. They point to Christ that we might be saved, but having been saved, they point to how we should live as Christians. And you see, Christians in Rome had got the whole thing completely the wrong way around. Now Satan can come and he can take scripture and he can turn it round and we can misuse it. And 
we've seen it. We know that there are Christians who misuse Scripture. And Satan loves to misuse Scripture. He, he, he uses Scripture in a way that seems to allow us to sin and permit us to sin. Scripture. Satan uses Scripture. I, I've known, I've known it. And, and I remember we were in somebody's lounge and somebody was telling us what they did. And we were just quite shocked. And this lady said, Ah, oh, it says in the word of God, there's no condemnation now. No condemnation. What she was saying was, I can do anything I like. As a Christian. See, Satan had got to her and used scripture so that she was completely muddled and mixed up in the things that she believed. Now next Sunday what we're going to do is we're going to go on and we're going to go into this passage again and see how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ rebukes Satan and overcomes him. But what we've done this morning is this. We've reminded ourselves of seven things that we've learned about temptation. We reminded ourselves of seven things which we've learned about the tempter. And we've, we've shown here very, very clearly of the certainty and suitability and the variety and the subtlety of Satan's temptations. But so we're not just left in the pits, as it were, thinking, this is, this is beyond me. How, how am I going to cope here? We need to remind ourselves of those things that keep coming in. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. You have a saviour who holds you fast. He will never, ever let you go. We were talking about assurance on Wednesday at the Bible study. That sense of the presence of God. Which is not dependent upon our feelings, it's dependent upon the word of God. And we come back to the word of God and we hear the Lord Jesus Christ win the victory for us here. Satan, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, only him you'll serve. Get behind me, Satan. He has won the victory. You know, your salvation hung in the balance here in Matthew 4. Your salvation is not only based upon the cross, which thank God it is, and wonderfully it is, crucially it is, but it is based upon the Lord Jesus Christ's life, his perfect life, which is put to your account. And if Jesus Christ had faltered here in this temptation time, then your salvation crumbles and falls. But thank God, at the end of this time, we read this, that the devil left him and angels came and ministered to him and that Christ went on from this time. His father having said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Satan comes and says, well, I'll have a go at him. But he has to go himself. And Jesus carries on in his perfect life and to the cross to die for you. So that you might be able to resist the tempter 
as he did.